Hi, it's Baz. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFEY's Youth and Education Podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory open discussions will invite you into the speaker's world and encourage challenging thinking. Hope you enjoy listening. While issues in the education sector frequently hit the headlines and spark passionate debate, other services that support young people can at times struggle to attract the attention that they deserve. Social work is one of these areas, described by some as the forgotten sector in public services, despite its vital role in supporting some of the most vulnerable young people in society. Social workers may work with children in care, young offenders, children who have experienced or are at risk of abuse, or those with physical or mental health needs. They can play a crucial role in making connections and coordinating support around a child, bringing the safety and stability that helps young people in need to achieve their full potential. Our next guest on The Life Pedagogic began her career as a social worker in 1980, working with children and their families in specialist roles in both residential and community settings. Born into a busy family of six children, Dame Christine Lenahan knew by age 16 that she wanted to change the world. Her experiences of volunteering at that age in a mental health hospital opened her eyes to some of the profound challenges that others face. By 18, she was travelling down to London to begin her training as a social worker supporting disabled children and their family. This passion stayed with her throughout her career, and in 2000, she joined the Council for Disabled Children, becoming its director in 2003. She has worked with ministers, civil servants and statutory agencies to examine and advise on policy and support the development of practical improvements that champion the rights of all disabled children and young people. Christine helped to establish the long-running Every Disabled Child Matters campaign, and in 2009 she was awarded an OBE, followed by a damehood in the 2016 Queen's Birthday Honours in recognition of her outstanding work spanning over 35 years. Dame Christine Lenahan, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Lovely to have you. Um, we're going to start off today with a bit of a topical discussion. Um, the government recently announced the second year of its short break scheme, which gives disabled children a chance to take part in local activities and develop their skills while giving their families a break from caring responsibilities. In the first year of the programme, seven local authority projects were funded across the 0 to 25 age range, and this year the work is being expanded to 10 new areas across the country. In its role as strategic reform partner to the DfE, the Council for Disabled Children has collaborated with local areas from year one to create learning examples that showcase good practice. Could you share with us your thoughts on the scheme so far and maybe give an example of the impact that you feel the work is having? Yeah, I suppose short breaks are so important to families of disabled children. Um, in the past, we had respite. I hate the word respite. Respite's about the removal of burdens and, you know, the families we work with and the children in them are not burdens. Short breaks in themselves are really good opportunities for children to do positive things and their families to get a break. Um, and we've been really pleased to work with the schemes. This programme has been very much working with authorities where we've been looking for innovation. We don't want the same old thing. We want to say to them, who are the children who most need support you haven't been able to reach? And can we design models that will support that, not just in the year of this programme or the two years, but on a long-term basis? And I, and I think what's interesting, if you take something like Camden, you know, Camden have been working on their Building Bridges programme, where actually you're taking young people who are often excluded or are often challenging to reach, the young people with labels of 
SEMH maybe or ASD and actually working with a really well-established youth organisation and CAMS professionals to build bespoke services which are about breaks in the community, which are about breaks that are, are relevant to those young people and work. And we can see that beginning to work. We've got another area where actually in a rural locality, they thought, what can we do rurally? Transport's a major issue. Um, mm. And so they've got a, a bus, a short breaks bus that goes around, brings kids together, provides opportunities. It's regular, it works. Children bring, build relationships. So what we've been looking for really is that level of innovation, mm. but also innovation built on sustainability. When we worked with the government some years ago on the Aiming High programme, there was a huge amount of money that went into short breaks and we had some fantastic things, but we lost so much of it at the end of the programme so these programs are very much about starting smaller, but building capacity for the long term. Yes, that's so important, isn't it? I think consistency is a real problem, and it can really disruptive for families if uh, if something begins and then and then they lose it further down the line. That's great. That's great to hear, um, and particularly the idea of, of maybe these activities being personalised to the young people as well, rather than being a sort of generic offer, and. Um, what would you like to see from the second year of the scheme? I think more innovation, really. I mean, the, the 10 authorities have now been announced. Uh, we start to bring them together. And our role really is to support them as a community of practice. Hmm. You know, um, just getting people to be challenged by their peers, supported by their peers, being pushed a bit by their peers to achieve is really important. So for me, it's more of it. And it, it is that personalised approaches to what we're trying to do and also evidence-based approaches to what we're trying to do. I think mm. the other thing we've been really keen on and government have been very keen as well is making sure that this is not programme that runs for three years and then maybe a year after that the evaluation comes out. So it's about using real-time learning as this goes out so yeah. that these approaches don't just benefit the particular authorities involved in the schemes but they, they, their learning gets spread across all authorities and that's the piece of work we're also interested in doing. Fantastic. That is vital, isn't it? I think a big part of our work at CFUY as well is um, making those connections so people can learn from each other rather than everybody working in silos on the same sort of challenges, which exactly. um, with the pressure that the sector is under is just not, not feasible in, in so many areas. Um, but that's uh, really exciting to hear and uh, look forward to see what comes out of, uh, of the coming years. Yep. Thanks very much for sharing that. I now want to take us back in time a bit um, to think back to your youth. What stands out to you in your memory from, from that time? So I was born in 1958, so, so I'm a child of the 70s, I suppose. And uh, so what stands out? Uh, some fairly terrible fashion <laughs> to be honest, I can remember getting a pair of loons, very, very wide trousers, and thinking that that was great. I suppose for me as well, I was the oldest of six children who were all born within seven years of one another. Wow. Um, and uh, so I lived in a really a small, very noisy household. <laughs> so a lot of my memories of youth are also about um, finding my identity separate to my three sisters and two brothers. Mm. Uh, and working out who was me and, and trying to do that and helping my dad stay calm when he had to go and my, rescue my sister 
who ran away from home to follow the Bay City Rollers. <gasps> wow. <laughs> Very far, but, you know. We had to bring You've got to have a go, haven't you? <laughs> You've got to have a go. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> that sounds uh, uh, turbulent. <laughs> but it was excitable. Yeah, I still yeah. talk to them every day, so it can't be too bad. Oh, well, that's lovely to hear. That's really nice. Um, fabulous. And what were your experiences of school like? Did you, did you enjoy yeah. learning? Interesting. So, like I say, it was a big family. It was a poor family. And, uh, but my dad was very, very keen on education. And um, so if he thought that I wasn't working as hard as I could at school, I remember being about 13 or 14 and we went into town and uh, we went to Woolworths. And he said to me, do you like Woolworths? And I quite liked, you know, like everyone else, the pick and mix. Because he said, because if you really like it, if you don't pass your exams, this is where you're going to work. Oh. Um, so he was quite fierce in some ways uh, and school was challenging uh, because I was never a kid that fitted really you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, you're a child and you're still trying to work out what am I good at and what can I do and, and whatever so I sort of I wasn't unhappy to I wasn't unhappy to leave school and I suppose like most people I had a couple of really good teachers and they were the teachers I loved. So I'm not telling you that my greatest passions in life were biology and geography, but they were the teachers that made mm. me feel I could achieve. Uh, and so not surprisingly, they then became the subjects that I did best at and took A-levels in and, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, it makes such a difference, doesn't it, when you feel kind of confident and supported like that, Um and it's lovely to hear on this podcast how many people have teachers like that who've really stuck in their memory over Definitely, time. Definitely, even know. now, you can still remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really special. Um, I, uh, <laughs> on the Woolworths point, um, my brother would kill me for saying this, but uh, when he was a very small boy, we, we found out that he'd been stealing the pick and mix. Um, <laughs> we, came, we came home from town one day and my dad unzipped his coat and it was just full of, of sweets. <laughs> so that was a real learning experience. <laughs> I'm not sure there were many families who didn't have somebody who uh, acquired extra pick and mix along the way, let's, let's shall we say. Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably part of the downfall of Woolworths in the long it term. It probably was, yeah. <laughs> um, and what were your next steps after school? Um, did you go on to any further study? I did. When I was, um, when I was sort of, uh, our, um, the way that education was organised um, meant that I, our school finished at 16 and in order to uh, take A-levels, you had to go to the Catholic convent in town because that's where the sixth form was. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I was quite, I was very influenced by my, faith i was brought up um jesuit catholic but by jesuit priests were our teachers and um i wanted at 16 quite simply to change the world you know it's very simple so i had to work out a way of doing that and uh when i i did quite a lot of volunteering and i i volunteered in a a long stay mental illness hospital and asylum uh as a sixth former and uh was really, really struck by the injustice of why those people were there and what mm. had happened to them and ended up doing some study attached to that, just t- trying to understand the stories of people's lives. And I realised, much to my family's horror, that I wanted to be a social worker. 
<laughs> good Catholic girls who did A-levels became teachers in those days, definitely not social workers. And uh, so at 18, I came down to London and started a degree in social work. So that was where I started. Um, and it was simple. I wanted to change lives. I didn't know how or whatever. And I had all the enthusiasm of youth. Um, and so that's where I started. And to be honest, 40 odd years later, I'm probably not that dissimilar. <laughs> oh, and I'm glad you've carried it with you. Not everyone does. <laughs> no, no. Um, what was it like to be a so social worker at the time? Um, what was what was the role like? Well, it, it, it's interesting, I suppose. In some, and I, you see, I never wanted to be... What I realised as I started to study, I came down to London to do a four-year degree course um, and started on the first term and got bored. I mean, I could do the academic stuff, but it wasn't what I wanted. Mm. And so I became a residential social worker as a job alongside working with disabled children in a, a big 20-place unit that had been built to take children out of long-stay hospitals. And mm. I loved working with the kids. And I knew fairly early on that I didn't want to be a generic social worker. You know, mm. I did everything. I wanted to specialise. I wanted... I did... Um, the only other thing I did as part of my placements was I spent um, six months in a, a mental health hospital, mm. uh, which was horrifying and fascinating. Um, and I think mental health would have been the other thing that I was interested in. And so I wanted to be a specialist social worker. I wanted um, to work with families of disabled children. Uh, so, you know, really, I tell people that I've had a, a successful career, but a very narrow one in lots of ways. I was very lucky to find my passion early, I suppose, and then be able to do that. So when I qualified in 1980, um, it was very much about understanding how to support the lives. So I started off in a role uh, working in an odd job. It was a mix of residential shifts because I wanted to understand 24 hours how life is lived. You know, mm. sometimes professionals only see 15 minutes of a child's life or half an hour and they make a judgment on that. And that mm. to me doesn't feel right. Uh, so I was working in a residential unit, a short break one. And uh, but I also had a, a program of work. Um, I had a case work, so I had a number of families I worked with, but also I was in charge of looking at our work with children who were then still in long stay institutions and actually developing a program that looked at how they could live in the community. Right. Um, so for me, it was really interesting, and I suppose it's where I became interested in citizenship. How do you support the young, young people with additional needs to be citizens? So I started in those roles, really, really trying to think, what is it that has to be in place for families to be the families they want to be uh, and children to live the lives they want to live? And I think in those days, actually, I think in some ways, some ways it was probably easier because there was more money in the system, even mm. that long ago. So you could work with families on options of, do you want this or do you want that? Whereas I think I do feel sorry for lots of people these days because I don't think some of those options are there anymore. It's interesting, isn't it? I've been really struck how um, how many gaps charities are plugging now that used yeah. to be um, sort exactly. of services that were offered you know, by the local authority or, or um, uh, funded in other ways. And, yeah, that's it's quite striking, isn't it? Well, where were the communities that you were working with at this time? 
So when I qualified, uh, when my first role was in the London Borough of Harrow. Right. Okay. So I've always worked in the London boroughs. Boroughs. Mm. I've worked in Harrow and uh, uh, Newham and Tower Hamlets. So I worked in North London, which is where I live. Um, and uh, was always fascinated by the sort of the mixture of communities in London. You mm. know, uh, what you work, what you also understand. And I think partly because I was brought up with faith, I tell you I'm very much a lapsed Catholic these days, but was how it influences your frame of reference, particularly for something like disability. You know, mm. there are cultural issues that you need to think about. There are faith issues that you need to think about. So actually understanding those different, you know, at one stage I did quite a, work, a lot of work with Orthodox Jewish families mm-hmm. and understanding where they came from and what happened and what that mattered. For other places, like when I worked in Tower Hamlets, I had to start, I was building a service from scratch in Tower Hamlets, uh, working for Bernardo's, and I had to, I knew from the outset that you don't build services for white families and expect fam- black families to join in. Mm-hmm. That's not how culture works. So I had to spend the first year of that really, really understanding the cultures and the communities and understanding what was acceptable and what wasn't. And I had a quite an odd experience because I went to work in Tower Hamlets, started talking to families and foster carers. I was building a fostering service amongst other things. Mm. And people had said to me, you realise you're, you're, you know, our granddad was taken to Australia by you lot or whatever. And I was thinking, what's going on here? Mm. And I went back to our head office in Barkingside and said to our managers, were we still taking children to Australia? And uh, they said to me, well, the last boat that took children from London to Australia under these, you know, better life abroad stuff was in 1963. Now, Mm. I was five in 1963, and it really, really struck me, and it stayed with me. And the reason it stayed with me was that in general, there's all sorts of issues going on, but in general, people weren't making that decisions to harm children. They were making decisions which they thought were in people's best interests. And you have to be judged by history. So when you're working and you're developing services, you have to you have to think, this is the best evidence I've got now, but it could change. Mm-hmm. You know, lives can change. And, you know, the lives of the families that I work with have changed a lot over the years. So I've always enjoyed that challenge of, of understanding those lives, wholly those lives, and understanding where people are and, and those issues within that. So I was working and understanding that for that some young people got much less service than others, and how did you do that? And there were, there were two groups of children that I was working with where I was thinking there has got to be a better way than that. And I, we worked near the London Hospital, and I was watching the changing nature of children's needs. You know, we had our first child then with a tracheostomy who mm. came to a play scheme, very much involved in the play scheme and lives, you know, with four nurses who sat at each corner of their wheelchair and didn't move. And you're thinking, hold on, this is not inclusion. Mm. So trying to think about for children with complex medical needs how they're fully included and what's the support we can offer. And then we had a group of uh, children who had significantly challenging behaviour. The world was a very frightening place for them. And, you know, I had a child who was really, really frightened about clouds, really quite anxious and worried about clouds. Mm. And I had a number of children who were worried about 
toddlers or dogs, you know, things that are unpredictable. Yeah. Um, and these children ended up being excluded from every service. So we designed a, a Saturday service and the criteria for admission was you've been thrown out for everywhere else. And so designing that service and making it work and get because otherwise families were sending children a long way from home and families didn't want that. Such an ongoing problem, isn't it? Um, it is. So so for me, the, the really interesting thing about working in practice and, and the jobs I did was finding jobs that gave me a space to do something that was different, that was able to say, hold on a minute, let's look at this. And also, you know, people talk about co-production these days. I don't think we knew what the words were then, mm-hmm. but it was about always working with, with families and children about how does this work for you? What's the best way of things working for you? You know, daft things. Families would come in and need support. And they'd need support because the way that the transport system from school worked meant that the system believed that they could be picking one child up from primary school and be at home with their disab- waiting for their disabled child transport at the same time. Mm. And actually, children were coming into the care system because those things happened. So it really was able to think creatively and, and to be able to do that. We didn't always succeed, but at least the approach was, hold on, let's think what the best is. Yes, and you have to have those, um, you know, high aspirations. Um, I think it's it's, a, it's an easy trap to fall into to say that's too challenging or that, you know, we can't make that work. Um or to kind of not properly listen, as you say, to, to what families know will work from the, for them from their own experiences and, and say sort of, oh, well, you know, I think that's that's outside of our remit or something. But often when you actually get down to trying things, there are ways to work around them. It's just having that kind of drive to do that in the first place and be willing to kind of push the boundaries. It's, it's having the flexibility, but also being clear of the standards, you know. Yeah. So um, we had a... Um... And a whole range of families came through, um, you know, and then it's worse, you know, and, and people worry about working with culture and faith and community and whatever, and you have to be, you know, you have to have a team around you who are good at that and you have to be confident about that. We had, we had a child who sticks in my head. He was a seven-year-old, all over the place this kid was, and he was smoking. What's going on here, you know? Uh, and uh, the... Uh, Play scheme staff dropped him off at home and rang me up because they'd found that what was happening was the child was being taken in, tied to a table with a flex off a hoover and given a cigarette to calm down. He was seven. Oh, my, goodness. Oh my God. Uh, I remember going round and saying to the family, this isn't what we do. And they said, no, no, it's cultural. It's culturally acceptable. And I was saying, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. So it was about being able to be really clear about, you know, we we – about how we're valuing children and how we're valuing families, but being clear about quality and outcomes and the things that mattered. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's an important balance, isn't it? Definitely. Um, and you went on to, to kind of move from the frontline support into more management positions, um, and you were working kind of across health, education and social care in both the public and voluntary sectors. Did you encounter any kind of key barriers to success at that level? And how did you approach them? It's probably worth saying why I did it, I suppose. For for me, it was about what fascinates me um, has never been money. Otherwise, I'd earn a lot more money. Um, Mm. You know, and it's not it's not been power or anything. It's been about 
where do you have to be in a system to make the biggest difference? So and as a social worker, you could make it to the families that you worked with. As I became a social work manager, it was those and then whatever. And I, and I had a naive belief in those days that somewhere in government and somewhere towards the centre, there was a plan. Mm. People had a plan for how services were going to develop and what going to happen. And uh, there isn't. And uh, so I started to think about how can I work in areas where I feel that I can make a difference. Key barriers to success are interesting. I think part of when you make your career working with disabled children, uh, I had quite a few people who believed that I was doing it because I wasn't good at anything else. You know, working Mm. with disabled children is not seen as valuable and not seen as important and not necessarily seen as skillful. So people would say to me, well, you'll never make it, Christine, unless you work with this group or you work with that group. Mm. Um, but I knew what I wanted to do, and I, and I knew that's what's going to happen. And for me, it was about um, – so I worked as a national policy advisor for Bernardo's for a bit, and that was really about bringing all of our programmes working with disabled children around the country together and understanding, again, different approaches, creativity, and how they made a difference to policy. And then in, um, in the late 1980s, I was doing quite a lot of work because the 1989 Children Act, which was enacted on the 15th of November 1991, very much sticks in my head, uh, was the first piece of children's law that made disabled children children. Before that, all the work that I had to do in designing services had been in using some obscure bit of health legislation. Disabled children were not in mainstream children's law, and it was really important that they were because actually they then got the value and they then got the approaches. And I started to do that and got into that and ended up having to go to government to argue for amendments for that piece of law. Mm. And I remember going in with my paperwork and whatever to see these civil servants who I was terrified by. And I was so frightened. They gave me a glass of water and I was, you know, like that. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that if I could get those through, and we did, we got the changes we wanted, Brilliant. that there were whole groups of children who'd never heard of me or any of the things I did or whatever, but for whom we could start to make children's lives better. And so for me, it was about being able to do that. And sometimes working across the system, it is about all the time understanding the very different ways the system works. And also if you, health, for example, is a very individualistic system. It is about the needs of the individual, the clinical needs of the individual, the support needs of the individual. Social care is not. Social care is a systemic system. Yes. How does this community, this, but in order to get change in both, you have to understand both of them and you have to understand the default positions that they come from and you have to understand why they want to do the things that they do. And I think that's always fascinated me, not in a sort of, you know, philosophical way in a sense, but just in a way of thinking, how is it I get this change that benefits this group of children from this bit of the system? So that's why I've sort of move through the system always with those issues in mind yes that is so interesting we uh at cfey we produced a book a few years back um called young people on the margins um dealing with lots of different marginalized young people's experiences and 
uh, yeah, exactly as you say, one of the kind of key themes throughout those chapters is trying to join things together like that, trying to to find the ways to get everything on the same page, to make links, to avoid kind of um, uh, lack of information sharing or, or that sort of thing. And that, and that yeah. just makes such a difference when it's successful. You joined the Council for Disabled Children um, at, the at the National Children's Bureau in 2000, and you became the director in 2003. Uh, what made you want to take up that role? And what were you kind of hoping to achieve when you, when you started out? So when I was in practice, I, I became a member of the Council for Disabled Children uh, because at that time it was the place attached to the National Children's Bureau, which did a lot of research and evidence and whatever, uh, where people went to learn about what the latest, um, you know, legal changes were, policy challenges were, or whatever. And I got really interested in the council's work. And I realised, as I was working with it, that that's a place I could go to make a difference, mm -hmm. that that gave me the link, that gave me the things. Yeah. And so um, the council was expanding. Its background in those days was very much about education law, really. And uh, uh, they realised the gap and the need to understand health and social care, uh, which is where I came from. I knew very little about education at that stage. Mm. And, um, and so a, a role came up as Principal Officer for Health and Social Care. So I was delighted to join it. I was really pleased to join it. Very small team in those days. And I also learned education and I learned system and I learned and I you know, it's my my first real meetings and understanding of how the civil service work, for example. Mm. Um, and you know what? It's a dream job. You know, I have a I have a job which I've done for twenty three years now as director, where I, in the course of a a, a fortnight, uh, I'll work with parents, I'll work with children and young people, I'll work in the problem solving areas with local authorities and systems. I can talk to ministers, I can talk to civil servants. I have a, a really privileged position of being able to see that whole breadth and then being able to, A, being able to work out where change can happen and also not getting carried away. If I ever get carried away by anything, there is always a parent to remind me what life is really like. <laughs> and that's really important. Yeah, you know, absolutely. As are the young people. Young people are great. I co-chaired a young people's conference the other week. It was fantastic. You know, it just, you know, for me, that's what matters. And what I wanted to achieve and what I hope that I have achieved, though you never stop wanting to achieve, mm. is just a way of making sure that the lives of disabled children and their families are not forgotten about. That yes. when government thinks policy, that when local areas think policy, uh, that actually that's what's there and we are here and we will keep saying those things. Yeah, yeah, and that advocacy is so important. Um, what have you been most proud of in your work in the role? Um, all sorts of things, really. Um, I suppose at the moment, um, you know, I am... I, I, developed an interest which I, I, I've got, which is about children who can't live at home. So what happens to children away? Um, and a few years ago, the, uh, one of the ministers for health asked me to look at what was happening to children in uh, inpatient um, health services who were learning dis disabled and autistic, mm. because we'd had a few spectacular 
cases of things going wrong. Uh, so it wasn't about those individual system children, it was about the system. And so I was given license, which is very nice, to wander around the world of health and ask awkward questions, which is good. And um, came back and was quite horrified, really, that when children were in the system, there was no single person guiding their journey. Mm. Children suddenly get moved in the system and nobody would know. Things would happen and parents wouldn't find out, you know, or they get lost, you know. They'd gone in for six weeks, three and a half years later, they're still sat there. Mm. Um, and so I strongly advise government to develop a key worker system for all children at risk of admission into that, that system and in it. And, uh, you know, actually they took the recommendation on, which is great. Brilliant. And I've spent the last year, 18 months, uh, looking at that programme come to life, and it is so positive. So when you can see that, that's a really easy one because I can see it, but mm. it's just that that ability just to keep making a difference. I also have a fantastic staff team. So you build a staff team and you build really, really strong relationships that are real with families, with young people. So that's what I like. Yes, those relationships are vital, aren't they? And, I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing to have achieved, absolutely. And it's it's so rare to be able to see impact in that way, isn't it? When you're working um, in this kind of space, it tends to be kind of small incremental changes um, that you hope you've contributed to. But fantastic to see something really come into practice like that. Um, you've mentioned there um, about your work uh, with young people in residential settings. Um, and you've carried out a um, number of significant reviews of practice um, uh, particularly in, in that space. Um, I read a report that you co-led last year for the safe, the Child Safeguarding Review Panel, um, which investigated some pretty shocking allegations of abuse um, and highlighted that the voices and experiences of this group of children are too often marginalised, misrecognised and hidden from public sight. I was really shocked reading the report um, and it gave me a lot of pause for thought. Uh, from your perspective, where are the main sort of weaknesses in the system when it comes to providing support for these young people? And what do we need to change to, to make sure that they get the opportunities um, and the care that they deserve? Well, it's interesting. The second phase of that report came out this week. Uh, it came out on the 20th of April. And uh, what the second phase of that work was, the first phase of that work was to find out why over 100 children in three residential special schools run by a private company had been systematically abused. Mm. What had happened to them and why had the system that should have kept them safe failed? The other thing that we did as part of that was we wanted to understand children's journeys from the diagnosis of additional needs through to why they ended up there um, and then look at the failures of community services, of education services, whatever. You know, over half of those children should and could have lived in the community. But there are some children whose needs are so intense, often because of traumatic stuff as well as their impairment, uh, that they need good therapeutic supported services, um, uh, which is not what they were getting. So what the Secretary of State for Education asked us to do was, in the second phase of the report, to say, could this happen anywhere else? And absolutely it could. Mm. So what would it take to make a difference? And there, there are a number of reasons that make a difference, and that's what we've been talking about this week. The first, though, and that's really important, was actually about hearing these child's voices. Yes. 
So what I would say has been interesting about, you know, the last years of my career has been that it has taken me a very, very long time to get people to understand that disabled children have voice. Mm. You know, I've I've worked with thousands of disabled kids. I have never, ever, ever met a child who did not communicate. I have met children who communicate in weird and wonderful ways unique to them, but that's not their problem, that's ours. Yes. Uh, and so to really understand that, and I think now in lots of the things that I do, that recognition of voice is there. The issue is now hearing it. Yes. Thank you. It's very good you're running participation groups. But as young people have said to me regularly, you asked us, what did you do about it? And I think in the case of children living away from home and these children, most of these children did not have verbal communication. Mm. But they were telling their stories loud and clear. Mm. So there's a really strong recommendation about hearing children and understanding and whatever. You know, I am... The youngest of these children was 10. Mm -hmm. The average distance from home was 96 miles. Mm. The furthest distance from home was 236 miles. So we took children who have a very limited understanding of the world, can't use technology, rely very much on a face-to-face world, a a world that they need to understand and compute and whatever. We take them a long, long way from home. We take the things that matter to them away and then we leave them. You know, to me, it is an unacceptable system. Mm. These children do not have a childhood that is valued. And so it was about being really strong about valuing children and thinking about different ways. But also, if children do need to go into services, and some children will, it was about how to make them safe. And it goes back to what we were talking about. The way to make children safe, A, is to keep them close to home if you can and provide good community services, but if not, is to have a really good joined-up service. Yes. And in this instance, it was not good and joined up. So children's health needs were not being met, children's education needs were not being met, and children's care needs were not being met, and our system of regulation was just too fragmented to pick it up. So there were lots and lots of warning signs for these children and the system didn't hear it. So the work we've been doing this week and is now with government is about now changing. And I am really, really clear with government that the recent changes, the SEND Alternative Provision Improvement Plan, uh, the Children's Social Care Implementation Plan are lovely. But unless we do a very, very specific piece of work on these children and what they need, things will not change. So, you know, the best thing that I can do, along with everybody else who worked on this, is to give government a very clear warning and expect them to hear. Mm, Absolutely agree. And, yeah, I really look forward to to reading the second part of that work. Um, It really had an impact on me reading the first part. It's it's powerful stuff. And, you know, I've been doing my job for a very long time but the last 18 months of doing that work have been one of the most challenging of my career I can absolutely imagine I yeah I had to sit down and take a moment having read it just (laughs) as a passive consumer you know and and I think um I can only imagine what it's like to to kind of be really involved in it yeah but yeah I'm really you know it's brilliant to hear you kind of raise that point about um representing the young people's voices because I think um there is 
a perception um, uh, sometimes of young people with additional needs that um, they don't get the same respect, basically, for voicing their, their needs. I, I think it, I have so always good. felt sort of in general that we don't respect young people's voices and understanding of themselves enough anyway. But for, for young people with additional needs or disabilities, it's that is taken to the extreme. And the kind of infantilization um, is, a, is a huge issue. Uh, and, and actually, it, just as you say, you know, it's about... Um, being able to respect and appreciate different ways of communication and um, understand how to, you know, take those perspectives into account and um, and really consider them um, carefully when when making changes because mm. you know imposing changes that you perceive are correct on on a, on a group of young people or on their families is is unlikely to have the success that you want. I think a lot of the time, isn't it? No, and it's it goes back to the old adages about respite. The way to solve a family's problem is to take the child away. And then you have to think about there is a child at the heart of this. And sometimes people get so lost in the, the labels and diagnostics around uh, disability. They forget, they forget that at the heart of it is a real, uh, real rounded human being who feels and yeah. breathes and thinks and loves and hates. And, you know, just because children have additional needs, they don't lose their humanity. Mm. Um, and the worst of systems forget that children are human and that's and that's why we have to keep coming back and reminding them and uh, one of the things I'm really really proud of actually at, at Council of Disabled Children is we have a really strong participation team mm. and we have young people involved in everything that we do and they do have a lot to say and uh, we have to hear them and that's really important and that we've worked harder to include more of those children from different backgrounds with different needs you know uh, you know, at one stage, the inclusion of disabled children and the participation of them was, can we find somebody who uses a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Aha, that'll do. You know, and going beyond that and understanding that and understanding things. So, and, you know, you, that that also is a, a thing that is never, um, is, an, is a job that's never finished, but it's one that you have to continue to strive at and question yourself on. Completely. Yeah, um, and you know that's a really important part of our work at, at the Centre for Education and Youth yeah. as well. And I must give a shout out to my colleague Abby Angus, who does a brilliant job of uh, constantly pushing us to develop what we do, uh, how we communicate, yeah. how Quite we approach right. things like that. Um, she does really brilliant stuff. Um, uh, I wanted to mention as well that um, you know you, you've received a number of, of um, accolades for, for your work over time, including an OBE uh, for services to disabled children and young people in 2009, and then your Damehood, of course, in the 2016 Queen's Birthday Honours List in recognition of all your work. What did those awards mean to you? Um, when I um, when I got my OBE, it was Prince Charles, and when I got my Damehood, it was the Queen. And uh, when I got my OBE, Prince Charles said to me, you know, the only reason we give these out is to give you the power to do more of what you do. And I think that was absolutely right. So one of the lovely things about having a damehood, uh, which I never use outside work, <laughs> ever, but it gives me the, it gives me more power to write to people who don't want to talk to me. <laughs> basically brilliant i use it every now and again when we hit a point in the system where we just have inaction and we need to change things because we know it will make life better for families 
I'll get one of my colleagues will appear and say, Christine, I think you need to write a daily letter. <laughs> so it's about using that that power. It's it's not about anything else. It's not about me personally or whatever. It is about using that recognition that means, for example, there are times, not often, when I have been very clear about using that with government departments, mm. when I have felt that something was not acceptable. Mm. And so it, it's using that and understanding that, really. Fantastic. And congratulations on it as well. <laughs> um, I'm aware we're coming to the end of our time now. Um, before we wrap up, there are a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests on The Life Pedagogic. And uh, the first of those is thinking back on your career, is there anything that you've really changed your mind on? And if so, what changed it? I'm a stubborn soul, you know, so I probably, I probably haven't changed my mind. I think I started off with some very simplistic ideas about how to make the world a better place. I've probably realised that the world's a lot more complicated than that mm. and some of my useful zeal probably was never going to come off. Um, I've also understood complexity in all, all sorts of ways. So, you know, if you think about inclusion, in our world inclusion has been a, a political football for as long as I can remember. Mm. And one of my team was a wise soul. And we did some work on this. And in the end, she said to me, do you know what, Christine? Inclusion is not a place. It's a process and a sense of belonging and a sense of being. And it's stuff like that that I've learnt. And it's stuff like that where regularly in my career, somebody has said, hold on, why do you think that? Mm. And I had to stop and think. So I think over time I haven't changed my mind, but I think I've developed a much deeper understanding of the issues that matter and why they matter. I've probably also developed an understanding of the issues that don't matter and mm. where it's not worth spending my time. Mm. Well, that's a lovely answer. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, and then finally, um, we always end on, on a quite a big question, but what two things would you most like to change about the English education, health or care system, if you could? Well... Actually, what, what I'd like, you know, in my magic wand days, uh, I want a national strategy and vision for how we look after children. I want there to be a national um, children's strategy. I want the following words to appear in the same sentence, which government cannot do at the moment, which is integrated children and workforce. Mm. We do not value children and we do not value the people who work with them. Mm. I want an integrated children's workforce strategy. I want a, a vision for why children matter, all children, but including the children that I represent. I want education, health and care to have core workforce and training components that are the same so we understand across the piece how we value children and how we work in partnership with parents. It cannot be right that teachers can go through the whole of their initial teacher training and end up in a classroom with an autistic child and not know what to do with them, for mm -hmm. example. I want a combined budgets across health, education and care so that actually we use our professional energy to work out the best decisions for children, not an argument about who pays for what. That's what I'd like. Fantastic. Thank you, Christine. And um, 
I too would like to see that happen. Um, <laughs> so anything that we can do uh, alongside your your work to to drive that forward um, would absolutely be be glad to. Um, well, thank you so much for for talking me through your journey and um, so many of the really fascinating parts of your career. Uh, really appreciate your time, and it's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic. Thank you. It was fascinating. Thanks for the opportunity, Alex. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Life Pedagogic. We love making this podcast, and if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it. And there are a few things you can do to help us. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know you think will find it interesting. And three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to get in touch with us using the links below in the show notes. See you back here for the next episode.